Hello everyone and welcome to the second part of the interview we had with Professor Hussein Solomon, head of the Department of Political Sciences of the University of the Free State and one of the biggest experts in jihadism and political Islam in the world. In this episode, we will talk about the role of political Islam in the power competition in the Middle East and how it affects international and African security. So we're very lucky to have for part two now, uh, Dr. Hussein Solomon, to now talk about uh, political Islam, uh, particularly with regards to the Middle East and how that has impacted the African continent. So to start off, I just want uh, to talk about the geopolitical competition of the regional powers in the Middle East. So Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran in particular, and then also Pakistan, and what sort of influence they've had across the African continent. Um, you know, let's take Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example. Uh, so the tensions between, you know, the uh, following the 1979 Iranian revolution, for the first time you have a theocratic state in terms of Iran, uh, rivaling that of the Saudi royal family, whose king calls himself the custodian of the two holy places, right, Mecca and Medina. Mm. And uh, so we don't have, as you know, in terms of Islam, a pope. So now mm. think of two rival popes here, mm. okay. Uh, of course, Shia Islam is, is much smaller than Sunni Islam. But I do believe that when you uh, look at it, you know, theologically speaking, you have 650 million Muslims on the African continent. Think about that for a second. Now, the majority of population, just to put it in perspective. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously, in terms of Europe, there's particular challenges in terms of fertility. Yes. (laughs) And birth rates. Yes, yes. Um, Africa doesn't have the same issues. (laughs) Different issues. Different issues. So, but, and, and the majority are Sunni, right? Muslims. But I do believe that, uh, Iran has been making inroads in terms of uh, Shia Islam. Uh, And this is especially true where there's a feeling that local Muslim Sunni groups have been co-opted by the state. Now, let me unpack this a bit. I think while Islam, like Christianity and 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 any other faith should uh, should speak to uh, the concerns of of the adherents and so forth. Uh, I personally am a secular Muslim. And 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 but what these groups have done is both groups have actually politicized it. And when you when when the state has gotten too close to to certain Muslim groups, uh, they are then seen as part of the problem, and it then results in a movement away from let's say Sufi Islam towards uh, Salafi Islam, mm. or from Sunni Islam to Shia Islam. Now, given that bit of a background, uh, for example, if you take Iran. They've been making inroads, uh, uh, you know, in in Nigeria, in Cameroon, uh, in Senegal, right? Um, 
And it, it's not just about expanding Ayatollah Khomeini's vision, you know, of uh, the Islamic Republic. Uh, I think it's strategic. Uh, so, for example, you have Hezbollah operating across the African continent, as you know, in terms of narco-trafficking networks, uh, 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 as well as the arms trade, illicit diamonds, and so forth, uh, the Iranian support for uh, for the Islamic movement in Nigeria, okay, and uh, uh, which is led by Ibrahim Zakzaki. Now, when they attempted to assassinate the Nigerian uh, army chief of staff, there was a massive crackdown in terms of uh, Shia and Muslims, and you know. Many of their members were killed. Zakzaki was jailed. And it resulted in Saudi Arabia increasing their support to Sunni groups like the Izala Society in Nigeria, which uh, resulted in Izala um, attacking Shiite groups. And when you take a country where you already have so many sectarian splits, mm-hmm. it it, it just adds to it. Um, uh, Iran has also been very interesting in terms of my own country, in terms of wanting to provide cheap oil and gas to South Africa, and then the Saudis counteracting that and and uh, and uh, not wanting uh, the former president to go to Tehran but visit Riyadh, where he sound various trade, lucrative trade and investment deals. Um, You know, if you take Sudan as an example, Khatoum was very close to the Islamic Republic of Iran for a long time, throughout the 1990s and 2000s. And Sudan was used uh, as a transit point to resupply Hezbollah and Hamas in terms of the Gaza Strip. Um, however, you know, Saudi checkbook diplomacy and stuff like that resulted in in Sudan uh, switching alliances and moving closer to to the to the uh, Saudi uh, grouping. And especially, you know, after Bashir uh, was indicted and removed from office, uh, when you had various sanctions put in terms of Khartoum and so forth. And now you know that Sudan uh, and Israel and so forth. So so there's something happening there. Turkey is, in my view, very, <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, because, you know, you have Erdogan, um, who in my view is an Islamist. Uh, but the Turkish population uh, is actually very, very secular, mm. right? Yes. Um, and maybe that's the success of uh, uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and the, uh, and the Republican ideals and everything else. But 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 especially the younger generation, mm. right? They're extremely secular and so on. But what Erdogan has been trying to do in terms of different audiences, right? On the one hand, he's been trying to resuscitate this kind of uh, echoes of the Ottoman Empire, right? 
but on the other hand, what you have with Turkey, especially after the fallout between Erdogan and the Gulenists, mm-hmm. right, is to checkmate all of their influence on the African continent. So yes, it's it is projecting power. Yes, it's about economic issues and so on. But it is very, very much also in line uh, in terms of setting up these mosques and these schools and trying to get various African states uh, in terms of checkbook diplomacy and so on to try to to close down Gulenist schools and uh, and Gulenist mosques and so on. Um, Iran, interestingly enough, in terms of the current uh, nuclear negotiations, they are also very much trying to um, to get more African states support. Okay, um, uh, you know. Um, then you have the standoff between, uh, 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 in terms of the Horn of Africa in particular, after uh, Iran uh, and the Iranian Navy started to make use of the Eritrean port of Asmara. So you had various GCC partners um, working with the likes of Djibouti and Somalia to, to you know, uh, set up military bases of their own. Uh, so the UAE has constructed a uh, a military base in uh, in uh, Somaliland. You know, uh, 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 Djibouti has allowed Saudi Arabia to construct a military base there, uh, and so on. Um, and then, of course, there's been tensions, as you know, which seems to be repaired now uh, between uh, between. Um, uh, uh, the GCC countries led by Saudi Arabia and and Qatar, and there too that rivalry was seen by by them making use of checkbook diplomacy and various incentives to to uh, to minimize the influence of Qatar and to increase their influence. One of the most interesting things now, the big question is when you when we talk about political Islam per se, is you know. Saudi Arabia has been undergoing tremendous changes. I mean, if you think about Wahhabi Islam, you know, that's the birthplace of it. Uh, Saudi Arabia has historically, I mean, it's it, in, in my view, it was no accident that what was it, 16 of the 1911 hijackers were Saudi mm. nationals and so on. Uh, this, this Wahhabi fundamentalist Islam, uh, uh, you know, now suddenly you find the Muslim World League headquartered in Saudi Arabia supporting interfaith dialogue. Uh, talk from the Saudis that the Jews are our cousins, opening up the airspace of Saudi Arabia in terms of Israel. Of course, the cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia has been on the rise quietly. Uh, but of course, uh, um, they haven't been party to the Abraham Accords. But the point that I'm trying to make here is all these changes in terms of the theological changes in terms of Saudi Arabia, what will that do in terms of these various groupings who look to 
Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of their support. Uh, also Qatar, which was supporting various groups in terms of the Sahel. Um, what would that mean? And, and can you today say um, hate, hate the West, hate liberal democracy, hate the LGBTI community, and then t- tomorrow the same imam says something different? Mm-hmm. Um, h- how does that play out? Yeah. Uh, in terms of ideologically, can you can you change, you know, at the flip of a switch? I don't think so. So it would be very interesting to see what these changes mean uh, to these groups, especially the Wahhabist groups and so forth. Um, in terms of the changes, uh, I mean, the UAE, um, you know, uh, um, uh, has been at the forefront of some major uh, uh, reforms of Islamic political thought in terms of Sharia, in terms of how verses of the Quran is going to be um, reinterpreted and all of this stuff. And and so how does this play out on the African continent, right? Um, these are big questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> We're going to say, do you see it like as almost part of a greater shift uh, towards more liberal Islam? Uh, being Turkey being the example towards that, where the youth is actually taking more control. Of and this. especially, especially uh, since the relations, as you were mentioning before, there's been an improvement, even though quietly, an improvement in the relation between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia. There's also been an improvement in the relation between uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia in this matter. Uh, Erdogan visiting. Um, is the, is that part of a of a greater shift? You know, Erdogan is an interesting guy, <laughs> and to be honest with you, he he absolutely confuses me. <laughs> let me let me explain. And I and um, I mean Erdogan, uh, you know that after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in in the consulate in Turkey, you know, I mean, the attacks he made on 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 Saudi Arabia and and the Crown it's Prince so has been incredible. Mm-hmm. And now he he now flip flops. Here you have a NATO country, uh, as in Turkey, who's also has close relations with Putin, but at the same time, mm-hmm. in terms of Armenia, Azerbaijan, what we know where they stood, or in Syria where they stood. Um, you know, I, I'm going to uh, say. In Syria, something. it's interesting to see because where, like, there were some parts, there were some sites in in Syria, and then there was Turkey that was financing and bombing different groups. Of the, like, that was yeah. No, absolutely, and I think that um, Turkey, in terms of 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 now Erdogan, you know, I have to admit it. I like so many other people. Uh, actually thought that Turkey provided a good example, uh, at least in in the first few years of the AKP into power, of where you can marry uh, 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 Islam and democracy, where you can marry Islam and the free enterprise system, capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, they actually stood for what you saw, economic growth and so on. And what you find 
is um, actually the worst of the Ottoman Empire coming out in terms of Turkey, in terms of the authoritarianism, in terms of its anti-growth policies, in terms of its um, uh, uh, um, him just moving around across a different of of issues. I do not believe that Turkey represents a good example in terms of what to do in terms of political Islam. Um, In my view, all faith should be outside of issues of governance. Mm. You know, um, the when when uh, if you look at the position of Grand Ayatollah Sistani, in terms of Iraq, that reflects a different tradition of Shia Islam. And I think it kind of has resonance to me in that uh, I think that all politics is dirty, all politics is filthy. And I think that when any religion starts interacting with the political sphere, that religion gets debased uh, by it. You see it in terms of, you know, go back to Europe, you know, in terms of the Catholic Church's role there, you know. Uh, But you see it, uh, you know, in terms of the Christian right wing in America, right? You see it in terms of the uh, Hindu fundamentalist Bharata Janata Party of Modi in terms of Mm -hmm. India. Uh, um, And I certainly see it in terms of of, for me, political Islam is a bit of a misnomer because mm-hmm. I think that, uh, like in South Africa, we had Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And while he was the Anglican Archbishop and while he fought against the apartheid regime, uh, he never saw himself as a replacement to the apartheid regime. Mm-hmm. He was opposed to apartheid, uh, racial oppression, uh, etc., on Christian grounds, but he never s- saw the church or the Anglican Church as an alternative to the apartheid state. Mm-hmm. In my view, um, uh, uh, imams and so on should and can speak out for social justice and so on and be the conscience of the nation, but they should not involve themselves in terms of the state. And I think that, I mean, look, I'm a practicing Muslim and and I read my Quran every night and so on, but it's not a template for governing a state. Mm-hmm. Neither is the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita or any other religious book. If only right? we had one. Right? If only we had a template. That right? Would be... <laughs> right? Um, what would have I mean, I mean, go back to 1917. Uh, you know, Das Kapital was not a template to govern, you know, uh, Russia, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of after the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's just the reality. Uh, and I think that uh, religion should call us to be uh, for, for the best, non, not the worst. And I think in terms of the various groups on the African continent, because there's no alternative, no viable alternative to the various uh, corrupt political leaders of various political parties and so on, and the patronage networks and so on. People are in desperation, turning to faith, in my view, wrongly so. So I don't 
subscribe to Turkey being this role model, or indeed the UAE, uh, or, or, or Saudi Arabia, or anything else. Uh, I think that faith should have no place in politics. I would like, uh, and with this we're going to merge with the last question that we always have in the show, but I would like to ask you about that uh, you've been mentioning, um, well, that you've also mentioned in other interviews, the, the, um, the disbelief that is, uh, that is becoming more common among the youth in countries where Uh, where religion is more at the core of governance, as it can be in Turkey, it can be in, in Saudi Arabia. From Saudi Arabia, I don't have uh, statistics, but I know for sure that in Turkey uh, there's been polls, there, there's been studies done that have shown that since the since the AKP was in power, the population, it's not just not, the, the, the religious population is not just not growing, but it's decreasing, particularly amongst the youth. And it is also something that it says, some studies say about uh, about Iran, which is uh, it, 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 it is a disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement exactly. of the people when the state is more intertwined with the religion. Exactly. And the, the question that I would like to pose here is because um, there's two main reasons that uh, that argument, obviously, there's two main interpretation. One is. Uh, Uh, the connection, the connectivity that the youth can with the rest of the world, and how they see that it, that other things happen in other sides of the world, and that can 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 foment that that disbelief. But the other is the 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 relationship, the correlation that some person would make when the state that is embedded in the religion, when the religion is embedded in the state, bad decisions taken by the state are considered bad for the religion in itself, and that foments disbelief. What is your thought in in that? It's, you know, uh, I did a book um, on the MENA region with Professor Anatosh in Vienna, mm -hmm. and we looked at the various surveys and stuff like that. And it was interesting for me that the countries which is more theocratic, in, in particular Turkey and Iran, uh, most of the youth is turned off. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think in terms of Turkey, I think um, uh, only 12% of of the youth actually believe uh, in terms of uh, Sharia law, for example, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, uh, and, and in terms of Iran, many, many uh, people don't even regard themselves as Muslim. They have even questions about whether heaven and hell ex exists. I mean, you kind of core tenets of faith. And I think fundamentally, if you take Iran and the youth there and, and how youthful that demographic pyramid is, they don't know the excesses of, and they haven't experienced the excesses of the Shah and his Savak. Mm -hmm. What they've experienced is since 1979, the iron yoke of these fundamentalist beliefs, right? In, in terms of both Turkey and uh, Iran, there's, there's the other issue. I mean, if you go back to the Arab Spring, the youth were at the forefront of that because mm. there were no jobs. And, and in both uh, Turkey and Iran, there's no jobs. Mm. You have large amounts of money, for example, in terms of Iran going to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, And, 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 and despite the beliefs of now being this pure uh, uh, 
Islamic State, there's lots of corruption in terms mm-hmm. of both the AKP, in terms of the various scandals, as well as in terms of Iran. And as a result, people are turned off from, from the faith. Um, you know, uh, you know, if, yeah. And I think that's what's driving it. And it's a poor example. Um, I mean, if you take, uh, uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, the the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, mm-hmm. you know, how powerful they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, they had one year in power. And, and Morsi just couldn't deliver. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kinds of decisions that they made, uh, appointing people on the basis, senior civil servants, on the basis of whether or not they prayed five times a day, <laughs> those kinds of decisions. You know, if you're going to appoint an engineer, yeah. you know, do you really care if he prays five times a day? You just want to know, is he technically competent to do his job? Mm-hmm. That's the issue. That's the issue. And uh, so while the alternative seems great when you are oppressed, when you're marginalized, when you are impoverished on the African continent, I think that African Muslims need to look at viable alternatives in terms of how to make the state function. And that state will function uh, based on the principles of good governance, which applies to every other state and on demands of of pure economics, supply and demand and things like that. Um, And to make the right decisions also in terms of their leadership and so on. And I think the problem with many African states, unfortunately, is that when they look at either the incumbent or the various political parties, which is often formed along ethnic lines or regional lines and so on, uh, it doesn't really speak to the challenges of governing in terms of the 21st century faced with the challenges of economic globalization, climate change, geopolitical rivalries and so forth. Well, as an engineer that's never prayed five times a day, I hope you're right and that the government's focus on the technical abilities rather than rather than the theocratic credentials. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. I, we've got one last question which we like to ask everyone, which is to try and give some idea to young people out there or young or old that are looking for a career in anything to do with geopolitics. I just want to know about your career path. What led you to the position of, as head of head of political science at uh, Freetown University and Free State, Free State University? <laughs> you know, um, I grew up uh, in apartheid South Africa. And I was the youngest of, um, of the children. And we were a highly politicized family uh, in the fight against apartheid. And so uh, whilst kids were reading, um, you know, um, uh, uh, stories, you know, uh, of fairy tales, uh, I was introduced to the likes of uh, uh, the tenets of Marxist Leninism. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a, sounds like a light reading. So I was kind of reading political books at a very young age, and I was always passionate about 
politics, but I believe it or not, I never voted. I never <laughs> joined a political party. Um, uh, yeah, simply because I've never been happy with the choices on offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I think the more I got to know politics, the more disenchanted I became. <laughs> but at the same time, I think what drove me was passion and wanting to make a difference. And making difference isn't sitting on the sidelines, okay? So I read a lot because I enjoyed reading, um, uh, you know, and I love to know what was going on elsewhere in the world because I've always been a globalist in that, you know, knowing that insecurity anywhere threatens security everywhere. So what happens in terms of uh, um, Ukraine, thousands of miles away, affects me when I go and fill up fuel mm. or, you know, I pay my electricity bill or my uh, or, or we go grocery shopping and, and buy uh, cooking oil, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the one thing that drove me was always this passion, but also wanting to make a difference. So uh, I was in the military. I, I, I worked for various uh, conflict resolution organizations on the African continent. I was involved uh, uh, with, an, with a global NGO called Global Action to Prevent War. I kid you not. To prevent war, uh, <laughs> war still around. Grand ambitions, grand, yeah, grand I, ambitions. I, I know. So it's that kind of idealism that you can still make a difference. Yeah, which drives you. I think that look, when you go into this field, it's lonely. It's hard work. It's hours and hours. If you're not motivated by passion, and if you're doing it for a job, well, it's not going to go anywhere. But at the same time. Theoretical textbook knowledge is not going to take you anywhere at all. So you have to get your hands dirty, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yes, I joined up with our military. I was involved in NGOs. I was involved in conflict resolution um, across the African continent. I was advising various institutions across the African continent about various security issues. And there was just a sense of wanting to make a difference, and I guess believing in a better tomorrow. I think I share that belief. I think yes. I, I, wouldn't have quit, I wouldn't have quit engineering to go into this field for money, that's for sure. <laughs> that's not a wise move. But. No, but it's definitely at this stage, uh, you, really, you really need to like what you're doing. You really need to feel the passion because if not, it really consumes you. I really find it always that it's a little bit, I don't know, um, I, for example, I don't know if it happens to you, Professor Solomon, but sometimes I need to take a break from reading the news. I need to take a break of like uh, a week or so, and I just get informed by headlines because like my, my brain gets super, I don't know, there's uh, three months of just bad news after bad news after bad news, and I cannot take my, ha- my head out of, the, out of the bad news, and I don't know. I, I think it's to. important to have a healthy outlet away, yes. from, <laughs> away from the negativity, maybe. <laughs> Well, there's you look look there is uh, obviously I mean um, the media isn't going to report mm-hmm. peace has broke out in this particular <laughs> country with the same intensity mm-hmm. uh, uh, that bad news sells right okay so rather there's a bombing in this country as opposed to a peace initiative 
But the more you get into this stuff, one, you find the interconnection between different things. And that's kind of exciting because it's like a gigantic puzzle. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's always seen connections. And, and, and if you see, hey, wait a minute, this worked in this country, could it possibly work in that country? Right. Um, you know, um, I, I mean, for example, I mean, again, maybe I'm just plain stupid, but I remember when uh, the Belfast Accords were signed mm -hmm. in terms of Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. you know, and the Catholic and Good Protestant Friday agreement. Right. And the, yeah, yeah I, was, I was quite fascinated. I, I, I was wondering, wait a minute, this has been going on for years mm -hmm. and it's holding and stuff like that. What's the possibility? I mean, now you have Sinn Féin in the Irish Parliament and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, what, so what's the possibility of us emulating that here, you know, in terms of the Muslim-Christian divide, in terms of the various African countries? And it's stupid, maybe idealistic and so on, but I live in hope, you know. I have a two-year-old daughter and I ask myself, you know, what kind of world is she going to inhabit? Mm. And how can I contribute in terms of making the world better in some small way, you know, because it's the little things that actually matter, you know, showing kindness to someone, you know, uh, writing something and then years later, somebody else says, hey, listen, we're going to try this in this particular area. That, that gives me a kick. But I mean, if you're going to do it in terms of a job, in terms of a paycheck, I can tell you it can be the most frustrating, mm. horrendous, negative experience of your life. Mm -hmm. um, do it for love. You're never going to get wealthy out of this. <laughs> do it for love. <laughs> right? I, I, yeah. I think that's a great message to end it on. Yes, <laughs> I think that's going to be a great message to end the, the conversation. You've given us some great insights, some fascinating topics. I think we've covered a lot in in the two parts here and we really really appreciate your time we're really yeah we're really we're really happy we're really uh, we really appreciate the, the fact that you took your time to be here with us today and uh, then i would like to close uh, this episode thank you professor solomon for being here once again it's been a pleasure to have you and uh, for the rest of you who are listening thank you very much for being there and uh, we'll see you hear each other in the next geopolitical people episode. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Geopolitical Pico. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind the scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week.